Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, today we uh, are continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. We took a one-week break and we're back in it. Uh, It's week 20-something. And we come to this text that's a a tough text. It's one that we have to know what to do with if we're going to be a Christian in a modern-day society because it's a text that has inspired thousands upon thousands of memes. That's right, memes. The most convincing uh, form of uh, argument in the American society, memes. If you want to make a point and have people agree with your point, make a meme. Because it's so simple, it's so easy to take a half, a half truth from something that you agree with, put it on top of a picture, and then people will like it. And it's the way that you move forward with your argument. When I say meme, I'm talking about these pictures that float around the internet that have a word on them or, or a sentence, and it's a part of pop culture, and it has this joke. And I'm a fan of memes, but... Uh, you have to realize that a meme is not the best way to have a complicated argument or a complicated um, issue presented in. And if you just Google uh, Bible slavery memes, you're going to find a wide array of things that people have to say about slavery in the Bible. But the thing is, the Bible is this ancient, complicated text with 66 books included in it, all of different genres, and different uh, styles, different authors. And so when you go through the Bible, you can't just pull out a verse without any context and make a, a declaration of this is what the Bible says, so you can't believe the Bible. But that's what happens all of the time. And friends, if we're going to seriously consider the message of Jesus, if we're going to seriously believe the message of Jesus personally, And if we're going to consider sharing the message of Jesus with our neighbors, we have to know what the Bible teaches about slavery. Because on first glance, what the Bible says about slavery is not good. We all know deep down, and this is just reality for everyone in this room. There is no one in this room I'm willing to bet. Sure, there might be people in the world, but I would bet if you woke up early, on daylight savings time, to make your way to church in Somerville, Massachusetts, that you are not a fan, a proponent of slavery. That is just not something that I think that anybody in here would be about. But yet, the scriptures talk about slavery. And so we have to know what to do with these scriptures. We have to know what to do with them. This passage, you might be like, I don't see what you're talking about with slavery. But if you look at Ephesians 6, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This word bond servants, almost all of your Bibles, it will have a superscription there. Mine has a two. And if you go to the bottom, it says, for contextual rendering of the Greek word doulos, see the preface. 
Well, that's a little complicated, all right? So then you have to go to the preface. And when you go to the preface, what you realize is that they have this Greek word doulos, which appears oftentimes in the scripture, and it means slave. But here they haven't translated it as slave, they've translated it as bondservant. Because obviously in English language, we use bondservant far more than we use slave. And that just makes more sense to our culture. Yeah. What is going on here? When you look up the definition of bondservant, it's actually defined as a person bound in service without wages. Okay, if you have a person bound in service without wages, you either have a child or you have a slave. (laughs) Are the translators of the Bible just trying to soften the language here? Why would they do that? Because, friends, we're a church that believes the Bible. That's the reality. We believe the Bible. So we have to know why the translators would do that, and what does the Bible have to say about slavery, and how do we interpret these difficult texts regarding slavery? People use these sorts of passages to argue against Christianity all the time. If you have conversations with friends who aren't, a Christian, who aren't Christians, you're going to come up against this. Um, Sam Harris, famous atheist, he, for example, used this in a debate uh, somewhat recently. He said, but if you go to the books, and you, which he means the Bible, and you try to figure out what the creator of the universe wants with respect to owning and, need, uh, owning and needless immiseration of other people, he expects you to keep slaves, and he's told you how to do it. And so what do we do with arguments like that? When we come to the scripture, and it seems like, in fact, the people who aren't Christians would tell us that owning slaves is actually recommended. You have to know how to read this. If you're new to Christianity, this is a question that you should be asking. You should be evaluating this. When you share the gospel with your friend, you should not be offended when they bring this up. This is an appropriate topic to bring up. It's one that we have to explore and know how to deal with. So how can you defend a Bible at all that seems to be defending slavery? Especially since we all know that there have been people throughout the history of the world, especially people throughout the history of this country, who have used verses like these to defend owning slaves. How do we defend a Bible that other people have used to defend a reprehensible, immoral, undefendable position? Something we all know deep down in our bones cannot be true, cannot be something that God would want us to do. How do we put those two things together? The easiest thing to do, and what many people would do, is... When they get to a passage like this, say, well, I don't believe that one. Next. I'm not about that. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about Jesus. What's going on in here, all right? Uh, They go straight from Ephesians 6, 4 to 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Yeah, I'm all about that one. But they skip this whole slave and master part. But that's not something that we can do because we believe this is God's word to us. So we have to know what it's saying, interpret it to our modern day context, and figure out how we can defend it. 
Because once you start cutting out pieces of the Bible, you'll end up like Thomas Jefferson. Have you heard about this? Thomas Jefferson had a Bible, and he had a pair of scissors that he kept near his Bible. And when he got to a part he didn't like, he just cut it out. That's how he dealt with it. But we're not Thomas Jefferson type of Christians, all right? Thomas Jefferson wouldn't even claim to be a Christian. So let's dive into this topic. What does the Bible teach about slavery, and how do we apply this passage to our life? So what does the Bible teach about slavery? Well, let me just start with this. Well, let me start with what I wish the Bible taught about slavery. Here's what I wish Paul had said. Instead of saying, bond servants, be subject to your earthly masters, I wish he had said just, just three simple words, no more slavery. That would have made my job a lot easier here today if Paul had just said, no more slavery. Stop it. That's how I want to handle a lot of my counseling sessions. I don't know if you've seen that old um, Bob Newhart uh, sketch, but it's like a, you go to a counselor and he just said, stop it. And then that's all that he has to offer. That, I wish that that's how Paul handled slavery. He just said, stop it. And why didn't he say that? Why didn't he say no more slavery? And I think that's a complicated issue, and, and we had to look at it within the cultural context. So we all had to look at what it was like to live in the year 60 AD. 30 years after the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, what was it like to live back then? And what was slavery like back then? Slavery was different in ancient times than what we tend to think about when we think about slavery. When we think about slavery, the, the images that come to my mind, because this is a movie that I saw somewhat recently, are like from 12 Years a Slave, which is just this cruel, immoral, absolutely reprehensible type of slavery that was going on then. And it is undefendable completely. We think about slavery from the American 1700s, 1600s, 1800s. We think about that type of slavery, this cruel kidnapping of people and forcing them to do labor. But in ancient times, there were two different types of slavery. There was the abduction type, and then there was a um, bankruptcy type. So with the abduction type, actually what we find in the scripture is that that is not allowed. <laughs> when you look at the abduction type of slavery, when you look in Exodus chapter 21, it says this, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So if you participate in the slave trade, you shall be put to death, is basically what this says, if you are part of ancient uh, Israel at that time. That's what it demanded at that time. God has always rejected this abduction, stealing type of slavery that, that we saw occurring in the United States during the, the, before the Civil War times. Always. And there's no slave owner that, was, that should have been able to defend that type of slavery happening. And so because of that, the, the bankruptcy form of slavery was more common within the Jewish world. Now, what do I mean when I say bankruptcy type of slavery? I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you live in this ancient day and you have your trade, but then hard times have hit and you have a large family and you're trying to feed your family, but you can't, uh, you, you've already had to sell the farm. Uh, times were so hard, you had to sell the farm. You don't have any more money. And so what are your options to feed your family? Well, you could go beg or you could starve or the other option for you at this time was to go and sell yourself to another person 
to do labor for that person. You basically become a part of their family. You have a long-term contract saying, I will work for you for X amount of days or years. You will provide for my family in return. And this was a sort of slavery that was happening back then. Old Testament professor Andrew Judd puts it like this. He's an Australian professor. He says, bankruptcy slavery meant that you voluntarily and temporarily became part of someone else's family business, working alongside them and their children to pay your debt. And then he continues to say, if you have a mortgage or an employment contract that lasts longer than a day, in ancient days, you would have been called a slave. And that's why this text actually uses the word bondservant here, not slave. Because this is probably more the context of what it means to be a bondservant. You're a servant, but you're bonded to a certain person to be a servant. You have this long-term contract. A different scholar, British New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln, he puts it like this. He says, no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery. The concept, indentured indentured labor, in which the laborer was not free to market his skills to other employees, was a given. No one, not even slaves, thought the whole institution should be abolished. Because they had no welfare. You had no, no fallback net. There was nothing else to do. This was your option. And if you wanted to use your hands to provide for your family, as most people did, this is what they would do. They say, I have to go and become a slavery, a slave here. And it wasn't necessarily always a shameful thing. Many people who were slaves were educated, they had professions, they had careers, but it was one of those things that sometimes when times were hard, you would have to fall back onto it, much like bankruptcy today. And so that's why Paul doesn't say no more slavery. Because in the ancient times, you would have, he would have had to say, you need to create welfare, you need to create structure systems, you need to create all these other things, and then no more slavery. It wasn't even an option, because there, weren't another, there wasn't another option to care for people when times were that hard. Instead, what he did in this passage, actually, is he starts to bring down the whole institution from the inside out. What he does is he teaches this new way of being a slave, this new way of being a slave owner, of being a master, of being a bondservant, that brings down the whole institution eventually. And what we see, I love how F.F. Bruce, another New Testament scholar, puts it. He says that the Bible's teaching on slavery created an atmosphere that left slavery to wilt and die. So how did Christianity destroy destroy slavery from the inside out? We have to look at our passage. And in our passage, verse 5 through 8, what he does is Paul tells the slaves to obey their earthly masters as they would obey Christ. We'll dig into that in just a minute. And then what he says after that is he says, masters, do the same to them. Hold up. That's revolutionary. Do the same to them. Treat them with respect and dignity, just as they're being called to treat you with respect and dignity. And he says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And so what Paul does is he just flattens this relationship between master and bondservant. And what he says is that you will no longer just have this master-servant relationship. You now have a brother-brother relationship. 
You have a sibling relationship. And you see, this was the bomb that that Paul laid in the middle of the institution of slavery that would eventually bring the whole thing down. And Christians would labor to bring the entire institution of slavery down. When you look at who stopped the slave trade, who was it? The main person that was at the middle of stopping it from a legal perspective was William Wilberforce, who was motivated by his Christian ethics, what he learned from the Bible here. This was the bomb that Paul laid that would eventually bring down the entire institution of slavery. Christians would eventually kill this thing. The world, the Christians gave the world the idea that slavery was wrong. And so we have this passage addressed to slaves and masters. And the reality is that for us today, while it's important for us to know how to handle these texts that regard slaves and masters, none of us here today are a slave or a master. And so what are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to gain anything from this text that talks about slavery and owning slaves, bond servants and masters? And the primary thing that we can learn from this text, because I think that there's some some principles that carry out in our everyday life. In the same way that you might be a single person listening to a a sermon on marriage, knowing that you might not ever be married, but yet you can learn things from this marriage text. I think that we can look at the principles that are articulated here, these gospel principles, and we can put them in place in our lives. And here's the main idea, is that Christians are called to do their secular work with a sacred mindset. Christians are called to do their secular work with a sacred mindset. If Paul calls slaves to do their work as if for the Lord, how much more so must we do our work as if for the Lord? And if Paul calls slave owners to treat their slaves with dignity and respect, how much more so should employers treat their employees with dignity and respect? Christians are called to their secular work with a sacred mindset. So let's dig into this passage. Okay, Verse 5, it says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, knowing, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. We know that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. We know that Jesus has called us to live our entire life for his glory. But the reality is, is that many of us spend most of our hours either asleep or at work. Do you have a Christianity that only addresses your evenings and weekends? Or do you have a Christianity that can address your nine to five? And how does it address your nine to five? I love what Dorothy Sayers has to say about this. She says this, that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. It transforms your work. Your Christianity means that you now work for the Lord. That whatever your earthly boss is, and I know that a lot of us don't like our earthly boss. I'm trying not to look at any of my employees. 
as I say that. That person is someone that we have to respect and we have to work for that company, for that, those people. We have to give our all in our work as if we're working for the Lord. That's what this is teaching us, that Christians are called to do their secular work with a sacred mindset. Christianity transforms not just how you work, but your goals for your work. That's how it gets to it. That's how it changes how you do your work, because it changes your goals for your work. Let me ask you a question that you probably won't be able to answer. Why do you do your work? Why do you work? I know a lot of us say, like, well, I got to make the money. I got to make some money to live. And that might be all it is for a lot of us. But a lot of us, our hearts get more tied up into our work. We do our work because we want to do a good job. Or we do our work not only to make money, but we do our work to prove ourselves in one way or another. Many of us will pursue a career to prove ourselves. If you live in Boston, you rub shoulders with important, with important people, with impressive people. You know people who have their PhDs in many different topics, and you might be motivated to work extra hard because you want to impress. You want to prove that you are not a bum, that you are not lazy. You can prove yourself in a variety of different ways. You might be trying to prove yourself to your peers, to be able to say, I'm this type of person. I have this job. You might be trying to prove yourself to your parents. That happens many times. How many of us know someone who went into a field that they weren't even interested in because their parents wanted them to go into that field? Oh, it happens. Or maybe the worst of all, maybe you're trying to prove yourself to yourself. And yourself is a very harsh critic. I know this from personal experience. Every week, I set lofty goals for myself. And by the end of the week, I'm in a pool of self-loathing because I did not meet my own goals. I've disappointed myself. I have not proven that I am not a bum. I have not proven that I'm not lazy. I've only shown myself to be insufficient and incapable of doing what I set out to do. I'm a failure. This is the internal monologue that I walk with every week. Why do you do the work that you do? Maybe you're trying to climb the corporate ladder. But why are you trying to climb the corporate ladder? Why are you trying to move your way up to be the boss of someone else, to be the boss, to be the woman, to be the man? Why are you trying to do that? Is it because you're trying to prove something to the people around you? You want to be respected. You want to receive the accolades. Maybe you do go to work just for the material side of it, but you work hard, extra hard, because you want that vacation. You want that form of materialism. You want that, you want that new car. You want that new phone. Whatever it might be, the materialism, it drives you. Why do you do the work that you do? At the same time, some of us, well, if you're like me, you oscillate between these two. I oscillate between the sense of, I'll never measure up. I try so hard. I have to prove myself. I have to work so hard. But then after I prove myself to be a failure, what I fall back into in my self-loathing is, I'll never make it. I'll never measure up. I'll never prove myself. It's all pointless. Why do I do any of it? I'm just going to watch YouTube. That's where it goes. Like, I just want to go to the gym. I just want to watch YouTube. I don't care about anything else. 
I just want to go play with my family. That's all I care about. And so my overwork is stemming from this desire to prove myself to myself. And when I fail to prove myself to myself, which it doesn't necessarily stem from failure here, but then I have an underwork that says I'll never measure up. I'm just here to punch the clock, do the least amount of work necessary, and go home. It feels like a treadmill, like I'm running and not going anywhere. What's the alternative? What's the alternative to this type of work? I think that Paul gives it to us right here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. What he's basically saying is do your work as if Jesus was your boss. Do your work as if Jesus was your boss. How would your work ethic be different if Jesus was your boss? Would you have to do that thing that your boss asked you to do that you thought was pointless if Jesus asked you to do it? Because you know that Jesus has a reason for why he would ask you to do things. Would you work 20 hours a day, six days a week, seven days a week, if Jesus was your boss? Trying to, would you work that hard to prove yourself to Jesus? Especially if Jesus was saying, I love you. You're already approved of. I care for you. I gave my life for you. You're precious to me. Why are you driving yourself so crazy trying to prove yourself to me? Why are you working so hard, frivolously, chasing after the wind to prove yourself? This eliminates overwork because the reality is there's nothing to prove. He already knows you inside and out. How are you going to prove yourself to Jesus? He already knows you. You, you've already been proven. He's already given himself for you. How are you going to prove yourself to Jesus? He knows you inside and out. But at the same time, it eliminates underwork because you don't want to do a half-hearted job if you're working for God. He says that we work, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This fear and trembling, this is something that we see pop up throughout the scriptures when you're approaching something sacred. When you're approaching this sacred thing, you, you approach it with fear and trembling. He says that we must approach our secular jobs with a sacred mindset. And then he says, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Now that's an interesting phrase. Because the word sincere is this interesting English word. I'll give you just a little bit of history on the word sincere. Um, it, it comes from the Latin uh, sign Sarah, where what would actually happen is in ancient times, uh, a potter would make a, a piece of uh, pottery out of clay, and if there was a flaw in the clay, they would put a little bit of wax on it. And sin, uh, I, I might not be, I'm, I don't speak Latin, so I don't know how to actually pronounce these things, um, but the sin part means without, and then Sarah means uh, wax. And so what they would do when they have flaw, a flaw in the pottery is they would cover it with wax. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell at first glance uh, that it had wax on it. And so what actually ended up happening is the pots that were well made were stamped with sin Sarah, without wax. And so they were well made pots. 
So that's where we get this word sincerity from, sincere heart. We're to give our all, a sincere heart, do a well job. But actually the word that shows up here is the Greek word. It's not, it, the Bible's not written in, in Latin, it's written in Greek. And so it's this aploteti, which communicates not just sincere, but generosity as well. We see this word show up in Romans 12, 8. It says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and that's the word, shows right there. The one who contributes, contributes in generosity. Not just sincerity, but in generosity. The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we do our secular jobs in this kind of way, with generosity, with sincerity, as if we were working for Christ himself. And he continues, verse 6, he says this, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Have you ever known someone who did their job as people pleasers or by way of eye, of, of, um, of, uh, eye, eye service? I've known plenty of people that have done this job. If you've worked a service industry job, you certainly know people that have done this. And if you've worked any sort of job, you probably know people that have done this. These are the people who stand around with a mop in one hand telling jokes, and when the, mop, when the boss walks out, they start scrubbing the floor, all right? These are the people who aren't doing anything until someone that matters walks in the room, and then they start doing something. That's eye service. That's being a people pleaser. But it can be the other way, too, where if you're working to prove yourself and you're just working for the pleasure of that person, to prove yourself to that person, that is what he's talking about right here. But if you're working as slaves of Christ, bondservants of Christ, you can't hide from him. He sees the work that you're doing always. This, this motivated me this week. Because... Writing, like a sermon, a lot of my job, writing things, writing a newsletter, writing a sermon, it takes a lot of concentration. And so I'm tempted to break that concentration all the time. And what I want to do is just go like so, surf social media or surf the internet. And then I'm like, well, Jesus sees all of this. I don't have a, a boss standing over my shoulder, but I have to give my best. I can't just slack off. I have to work hard. Friends, unless you fully digest this message, you'll never stop overworking. You'll never stop underworking. This message that God loves you completely apart from your performance. You have to return to that acceptance and love over and over, or you'll never stop trying to prove yourself. You have to return to this message of you are loved by Christ over and and over. When you're tempted to overwork, my friends, when you're tempted to try to prove yourself that you're not a bum, that you're not lazy by the amount that you get produced, you have to look to the one who says it is finished. That it, your work is over with. That you are loved. At the same time, you need to digest this message completely or you will never stop underworking. You were created by God to serve him and to make him known. Everything you do is for his glory. So that's motivation enough to do my work for God. But Paul goes even further. And he says this in verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. This is interesting because what he's actually saying is that you are going to be rewarded for your work. You're going to be paid for your work. 
But the work that you do, you're not receiving full payment for right now. One day you will receive payment from God for the work that you do today. For the work that you do today, you will receive payment from God. Friends, are you underpaid and underappreciated at your job? Many of us are. I've been in that place where I feel like I'm doing twice as much work and getting paid half as much as this person over here. Underpaid, underappreciated. And when I think about that time in my life when I felt like that, I felt so irate. I felt angry, mad. I felt like the world just isn't just. I'm going to be loud enough until someone hears me and they make this right. And if I could go back in time and talk to Fletcher at that time, I would say, hey, bud, that's all fair and good. You need to make your needs known. But you need to know this truth, that your reward isn't today. And the work that you are doing today will be compensated not only financially today, but in eternity in heaven. That's a truth that is actually kind of difficult for us because we feel like that's just not fair. We should be paid fairly today. But friends, that's not the way that the world has always worked. And I can tell you that millions of people throughout the history of the world have held on to this verse and said, I'm not getting mine today. I'm not being paid fairly today. But one day, I will be paid fairly in heaven. I'm not trying to say that you can't ask for a raise. I'm not trying to say that you can't say, hey, I'm not being treated fairly. You should be. But you also have these, this eternal truth that one day you will be rewarded for the work that you do. Because you don't just work for your boss, but you work for the boss behind the boss, who is Christ. You see, when you look at your boss, you, just, you, you can't just see that person's face, but you have to look at, at the cross behind the boss. That sounded really old-timey preacher, but we'll go with it. We have to place our hope not just in the monetary thing for today, but in eternity, in this hope that we have in heaven. So each week, something that we do to remind ourselves of this eternal hope that we have is we take this meal, which is a communion meal that reminds us that one day we will feast with God, that we'll go to him and we'll have anything our heart can desire, but more than that, we'll have him, which is the desire of our heart ultimately. And we long for that day when we'll be rewarded for the work that we do today. And so as we take a communion meal, we're reminded and pointed forward to that day when we get to dine and live with him. Father, as we come to this, this sacred table, we pray that We'll place our hope in you alone, that we'll look toward you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that you'll motivate us to love your word, that we'll see the, the beauty behind your word, and that we'll be encouraged by it. And Father, we pray that you bind us together as a church, as a community, as friends and fellows. And uh, Father, as we sing these songs, may, may you be pleased uh, with our song. In Christ's name we pray.